Sturgill Roofing, a roofing company, was performing a removal service on a building in Ohio in order to install a new roof. And one of their new employees on his first day, a 60-year-old employee, uh, and on his first day on the job as a temporary employee for Sturgill, was performing some of the removal tasks, which involved heavy lifting in humid conditions. The temperature was only 82 degrees. But during the course of the day, he suffered from some of the signs of heat, illness, dizziness, confusion, and was removed to hospital. And unfortunately, three weeks later, he died. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, lacking a specific standard on the subject, issued a citation against the employer under the general duty clause. And its ability to enforce under the general duty clause was frustrated by one singular element that they needed to establish of the four elements they needed to establish. We're going to talk about the Sturgill case, and we're also going to talk about OSHA's efforts to promulgate a new rule addressing heat stress. And all of this we'll deal with today on the OSHA 3030, the May 25th, 2022 episode. I'm Manish Rath, and thank you for joining us on the OSHA 3030. Hello, everyone. As I said, I'm Manish Rath. I'm a partner at the law firm Keller and Heckman, and we are a law firm right here in Washington, D.C. I engage in the practice of representing management in the field of occupational safety and health law. More about me can be found on our website, khlaw.com. Uh, I'm very fortunate because I have two people joining me today on today's program. Uh, my colleague here at Keller and Heckman, Taylor Johnson, who is a part of our occupational safety and health practice group, as well as our uh, environmental law practice groups. Taylor, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here as always, Manish. And we're also joined by Ned Fitter with McLean Contracting Company. Ned is the safety director uh, at McLean, and he, he has some terrific experience in developing and implementing a heat stress management protocol at McLean. Ned, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, Ned and uh, Taylor and I were invited to speak at a, a conference here in the Mid-Atlantic for the construction industry. And as all of you can imagine, construction is front and center when it comes to exposures to heat, particularly from about this point in the calendar year uh, going forward over at least the next four months. And in more Southern latitudes, by the time you get to Florida, Louisiana, et cetera, or the, the desert states of the Southwest, this would continue even for a few months on the beginning and, and end of that time frame uh, beyond that. And so this is a critical issue for, for construction and all outdoor uh, agricultural, all uh, outdoor uh, industries, including road construction, road maintenance. But it's also important to recognize that this is a heat uh, that heat stress is an uh, indoor exposure as well in certain industries. So let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. Taylor? Sure, Manish. You know, we've got a great program lined up today. Uh, first, we're going to ask Ned some questions about heat, heat illness in general. 
Uh, and then we'll go over some existing heat standards that are out there. Uh, NIOSH, state standards, OSHA's National Emphasis Program. Uh, we're going to cover the general duty clause in the Sturgill case as it relates to heat stress enforcement. And then we're going to ask Ned some questions about McLean Contracting Company's heat stress program uh, that he's helped develop. Uh, we'll wrap up with an off-the-record session uh, where we'll answer some great pre-submitted questions. And so we've really got a great program here today. Yeah, I think that's right. And and I know everyone is interested in what OSHA is going to do next. And as you said, we're going to talk about that. Um, I think that's, that the practical application in the meantime is really the most uh, important, the most timely, and the most actionable for, for members of the uh, for the, of uh, the OSHA 3030 community. And so I think for that reason, we're real grateful to have Ned on board. Ned, why don't we start with you? You're out there on a day-to-day -day basis. You're out in the field every day. And so, so tell us what are some of the impacts of heat illness on, on the worker and on the operations, uh, as, as you've experienced it? Yeah, this is something that's kind of important to us because we really, as an operations-based company in heavy marine, our operations knew that we had issues as we came into the summer. We always saw that guys were always really tired. I mean, you have a good day out in the sun, it, it beats you up a little bit. So with that, we started to notice that our production would go down on projects. What we had budgeted for wasn't what the guys were turning out. We also started to see lower attention spans. And this was key in, because we would see the more incidents as the incidents increased because guys were getting they were just distracted by being tired, just overheated. Um, and then we started to notice some other things. And this was with the help of our OCDOC, we noticed that with the dehydration, that their performance as a whole dropped. And our OCDOC actually gave us the percentages. And this was really helpful to us to help develop our program. But at 2%, they were down. At 4%, they really had some issues. And we were really getting them involved. And that's how we kind of worked out how to hydrate our employees better, how to treat them, how to talk to them and really get them moving from that forward in the right direction. So Ned, when the body responds to heat stress, clearly temperature is one of the factors that impacts this biological response. Can you tell us about some of the other factors affecting heat illness or creating heat illness symptoms? Yeah, there's some really important ones. You gotta take age into consideration. You know, the younger men, they tend to be a little bit better shape, but as they get older, their body can't recover as quickly and really understand how their physical condition with their age affects them. So, I mean, you got a guy that's in peak performance out there lifting weights, ready to go, not a heavy set person like myself, but you know, they can do a little bit better in the heat. Um, the older you get, the more tired you get with that heat. It really takes it into you. How we acclimatize the individual. So, you know, when we get a lot of our new employees, most of these guys are coming right out of McDonald's, Walmart. They've been indoors their entire career. They're young, but they have never worked out in the heat. They don't know how to properly prepare. Sometimes the older individuals really can prepare themselves because they know what's coming. They know how to drink the water beforehand, eat the right foods. These new people don't know the right foods to drink. Don't know that energy drinks are just horrible for you, but they love them to death. We really have to work through them and make them understand how to consume water properly, what the proper foods are. We also have to think of medications. You know, the older workforce, they might be on a few different medications that could affect how the heat reacts to them. Those are things that we have to understand. And that's how we, we definitely 
our occupational doctor came in handy was he helped us understand what we need to train our people to. And then, you know, I'm in construction. We tend to be a little bit harder partiers. They love to drink the beer after the day, but you know, we got to teach them about that. And unfortunately we've seen, and this is pretty common across our industry right now, uh, drug abuse. And that's not only just illegal, but that's prescription drugs too. And, you know, and then we have to also take into consideration our work environment. For us, we could be one day we're working in a facility. The next day we're out in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay on a barge, no wind, and the sun's beating down on us. And that's a steel barge. There's not a lot of places to hide there from the sun. And that, that steel will heat up. So we really have to think about where we're working and what the crew is doing for the day. I mean, if we're doing a pile driving operation, that's a lot of work for about 20 minutes. And then the guys sit for 30 minutes, you know, and that's, we take all of those factors in when we were putting together our program. Yeah, this is excellent. And you'll note that in the Sergio case, we had several of these factors uh, converging in one unfortunate outcome, physical conditioning, age, he was 60 years old, uh, water consumption was an issue. The work environment, it was up on a roof, black tar roof. And, and in addition, of course, this really critical question of acclimatization, this was his first day on the job. You've really developed a good list here of factors to keep an eye out for, Ned. Thank you. Taylor? Sure, you know, I think one of the things that we, we talked about is, is OSHA's promulgating a final rule. And so in terms of what might be in the final rule as it relates to heat stress, there are a few existing places um, that we can turn to. First being NIOSH recommendations um, when it comes to heat stress. So these were issued in 2016 and they included recommendations um, such as engineering controls. So these would be heat absorbent shielding, training recommendations, so toolbox talks, climatization. So exactly what Ned was talking about, a gradual increase in exposure to hot conditions uh, over seven to 14 days. Hydration, uh, one cup of water every 15 to 20 minutes, and then rest breaks. Um, these rest breaks, uh, NIOSH recommends, will increase in frequency as temperature and humidity rise. So it's certainly um, one place that we can look to in terms of what will be in OSHA's final rule, uh, the NIOSH recommendations. It's one place. And Taylor, I, I'll tell you the maybe one of the most distressing elements of the NIOSH recommendations from the perspective of the employer who has to implement this on a day-to-day -day basis is that it's needlessly, I think, complicated. They have a table with temperatures by degree, one degree increments, and then three columns for moderate work, uh, light work, moderate work, and heavy work. And so for, at every temperature, you've got to determine whether or not you're dealing with light work, moderate work, or heavy work. And as the temperature increases and the work changes, remember Ned said that there'll be 30 minutes of heavy work and then 30 minutes of sitting waiting for the next uh, load. And so, so that's constantly changing. And then in addition, you have, there's a formula for adding to the temperature based on the humidity. And all of this has to be factored in by the safety and health director who's on site. And that needless, and, and by supervisors at sites that don't have a safety and health director on site. And so that needlessly complicated uh, matrix makes it more challenging and less reasonable to expect that all employers everywhere are going to be able to faithfully comply with all of these tables and the factors that get added to the tables based on humidity, et cetera. Uh, so there's, to me, real limitations, not in the approach to describing what employers should do with heat, but in the 
expectation for employers everywhere at establishments everywhere to faithfully execute in accordance with the scheme that NIOSH has set up. I just think that that is a needlessly problematic kind of a design. So in addition, as, as you mentioned to the federal system, which is at, at the moment described by NIOSH, there are some states that have, have passed some heat standards of their own. That's right. So just this week, uh, Ocean, uh, Oregon OSHA released a finalized heat illness standard that's going to take effect on June 15th. The standard applies to indoor and outdoor environments. And when the heat index is 80 degrees or higher, employers must provide employees with access to shade and drinking water must be readily available. Now there's an exemption for buildings and structures that have a mechanical ventilation system that keeps the heat index uh, below 80 degrees Fahrenheit. So we wanted to note that. And when the heat index is 80 degrees Fahrenheit or higher, uh, high heat practices are required. These include observation and monitoring, emergency response procedures, and longer than normal rest breaks. And then there's another striation for 90 degrees and higher? Right. That's the 90 degrees and higher. Yes, that's the high heat index. Yes. And that's something that you see in California's uh, heat illness standard as well. It's sort of these these high heat index days. The one point of distinction uh, with California's heat illness standard is that it only applies to outdoor work sites as opposed to Oregon's. And OSHA's proposed rule is going to look at indoor and outdoor. And again, you see these two temperature cutoff points. So one at 80 degrees Fahrenheit for California, the other at 95 degrees Fahrenheit. And 80 degrees triggers, again, this access to shade um, at all times at employees are present. And then like you were, like you were saying, Manish, 95 degrees and above triggers these mandatory high heat procedures. Uh, so these include observation and monitoring for alertness, signs of heat illness. And then those folks that are doing in the monitoring are connected to emergency response mechanisms in order to make sure that those can arrive quickly on site if needed. So that's a little bit of what's going on at the state level. And Manish, there's also been some recent developments at the federal level as well. Well, so that's right. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration promulgated a National Emphasis Program, or NEP. And what that is, is it is a statement internally to area directors that this is something that you, the area director for OSHA, should place an emphasis on when conducting inspections. So if you're conducting an inspection about, let's say, a complaint premised on fall protection, while you're there, see that there, there is some kind of reasonable protocol relating to heat stress management. Or if you're driving by a construction site, not intending to conduct an inspection, see what you can do to observe in plain sight what heat stress management protocols you can observe. And if you observe that there aren't any, or you observe what you think are violative practices, then OSHA instructs the area directors to instruct their compliance officers, then enter and inquire further. So that's the the effect of a national emphasis program. Here, they've issued one uh, in April on on heat uh, stress. And it it basically, at first, it identifies 70 high-risk industries, and it, it creates a requirement or an expectation, I should say, that employers develop protocols for heat stress management on heat priority days. And that, that's defined as days where the heat index is 80 degrees or higher. Note that some protocols deal with the temperature and ask you to factor in humidity to develop a, a factored heat and others allow employers to look to the heat index, which is a widely disseminated data point, single data point that factors in both heat and humidity. And it originates with the National Weather Service and it, it can be found readily on everyone's phones on, on various weather apps or websites. And so that 
that heat index is sort of uh, the one number that factors in the complex relationship between heat and humidity. So this national emphasis program allows employers to focus on the heat index at 80 and higher and uh, set up protocols for heat management heat stress management at that threshold, and then to take in, interventional uh, action like breaks, water, uh, making water available, uh, having cooling centers, shade, and the monitoring of employees, as well as uh, knowing when to direct employees for medical care. So that's the National Emphasis Program, and it's essentially a guide for employers, for, for, the, air, for the national office to tell area directors how to look for compliance. Manish OSHA has announced uh, its intention uh, to develop a final rule uh, when it comes to heat stress and illness in the workplace. And the goal is to develop a, a specific standard um, for heat-related injury and illness prevention, sort of taking this, this patchwork of existing recommendations and state laws and hopefully promulgating one thing that we could all look to at the federal level. So we talked about Sturgill at the beginning, and this illustrates the problem with the general duty clause. Right now, how OSHA is enforcing for what it believes to be violations of the general duty clause with respect to heat stress management is that it's using the general duty clause and it has to establish all four elements of the general duty clause. And we've talked about this in a number of our prior episodes of the OSHA 3030. Sturgill itself, by the way, was one of our episodes. So check it out if you want a further developed explanation of the Sturgill case. But essentially, the agency has to establish under the general duty clause that there was a recognized hazard that would have led to death or serious harm that the employees were exposed to that hazard and that there was a feasible means of abatement. And here with heat stress, it's very difficult for OSHA to establish that the hazard is recognized. In that case, it was only 80 degrees. And the employee had been there for a very short time, a matter of hours. And so the review commission reversed the administrative law judge who had affirmed the citation. And the review commission essentially tossed out the citation and said, it's not something that the agency has successfully established that it would have been generally recognized at 80 degrees, having only worked for a few hours, that there was a hazard that anybody should have known about. And, and I think that is going to be one of the difficulties that's, uh, that the agency and its compliance officers are going to encounter when using the general duty clause as the mechanism for enforcing on this concept. So let's talk about what right now, Taylor, you mentioned that we are in an environment other than where there's a specific state standard for heat stress management in the federal system and in all of those other state plan states that don't have a heat standard. We're in an environment where employers need to manage this under the general duty clause, under the national emphasis program, under NIOSH's guidance. Uh, so, so let's talk to, uh, about what are the steps that employers can take. Ned, what are the kinds of elements that you incorporated when you developed the heat stress management program at McLean? The first thing was, how are we going to get water? You know, and that's, that was the biggest thing that we had to overcome, especially with being out in the water on barges, making sure that we had plenty of drinking water, access to the shade. We developed kind of plans around this and we really used it as part of the planning tool of our work. So in the morning JSA, hey, let's talk about these things so that everybody knows what's going on. The biggest thing was the weather monitoring. How were we gonna do it effectively? Now, like you guys had said earlier, NIOSH has this huge thing about how you got to measure everything, what you got to do. That just doesn't work out on a barge or on a construction site. That's 
too cumbersome. We use the most easily and readily available tool that most of our workers have now, and that's their cell phone. You can get on any app here from Weatherbug to any of the other ones that are out there. We use Weatherbug for the safety department because, well, I picked that one and I liked it, so that's the one we got lucky with. But we use the real field. What's the body actually feeling? And we set our program around the real field temperatures. And that helped us so that we could call and talk to a supervisor and they're like, okay, this is the real field. This is what I gotta do. And we set levels to that temperature. Then we set up our own procedure and we tried to make it as simple as possible for them to follow. If it gets overly complicated, they're not gonna use it because they're gonna get annoyed at it. These are construction workers. They wanna get to work. They wanna build something. They wanna show that they were productive for the day make a program that works for them. And then we had, what are you gonna do in an emergency? Who are you gonna call? And we set that up and we made it very simple for our employees. There's a phone tree, they know who to call in the safety department. If there's not an on-site safety professional there, they know what's gonna happen. They know that we're gonna be in contact with our official doctor. They know that more than likely we're gonna to have to do some steps that he prescribes to us and we gotta take care of that employee. And then what we, are we going to do afterwards? Because, you know, with a heat illness, it's not just that day. It's the next day. And it's the day after. you got to think about all of that. And then we got to do the training. So we worked on how we were going to train our people. Well, we did it through our toolbox talks. We did it through a heat training. And we did it through um, our first aid and CPR class, where we trained all of our supervisors. So that's kind of some of the aspects of our program that we've used. But I think... Really, the understanding is when's your program going to be? Well, we picked May 1st through October 31st because that's when you start to see your temperatures. And in our latitude, that's about right. But employers in other latitudes can adjust that within reason. Correct. And for us, that we do adjust that because we sometimes are down working in South Florida. You're going to be a little bit earlier or we're up into the Delaware Bay where you might be a little later. But the other big thing was in construction and every other line of work, the buddy system. You've got to look out for the guys around you and they got to look out for you because to be honest, most people can't tell when they're starting to have issues with heat because they're just not paying attention. But your buddy will be look over at you and you've got that look and then they can talk to you and we can get them before it becomes a problem. The acclimatization, that is something that the supervisors know and something that we talk about on a regular basis with them. How do you um, incorporate the acclimatization concept. Do you have a formula? We don't have a specific formula. It's more of we get them out there, we assign them tasks that are not as rigorous as some of the other ones. And we kind of watch them, we coach them. There's a lot of coaching. You'll notice that the older workers will turn to the young guy and yell at them in a construction way, go get a water, go get a water, go rest for a second. I think that's a really common sense and wise approach. And I'm going to explain why the, the, the tables not that NIOSH loves, it also has a table for acclimatization where on your first day you work, I think, five hours, and then six hours. It goes all the way up for, through 14 days. But every employee has different acclimatization schedules that are personal to them. You've hired, let's say, three guys. One worked in an unconditioned warehouse. One worked in a refrigerated warehouse. And one's been doing construction outdoors for the, you know, all of June before they join you in July. It would be unreasonable to apply the same acclimatization schedule to all three of them. They're going to, to acclimatize differently. That's part of also talking to the supervisor too, because the supervisor is essentially that mentor of that individual. 
They've got to watch them and talk to them. And, you know, the other big thing that we did with our employees is we shift our start times in the summer. And we will start as early as three or four in the morning so that by the heat of the day, a little afternoon, all of our guys are going home because it's smart business for us. We can get a full day's of work and it's not as hot. I mean, it's still hot out there, but that's really essential for us. And the biggest part for being in the safety department is how do we alert operations? Now, our method is normally my team is checking the weather for the week coming ahead. I mean, almost everything out there has weather reports up to 30 days in advance, you know, of subject to change, but we can really kind of get a real feel for about five days. Once we notify operations, we go through our construction managers, which he then talks to all of the projects and lets them know, hey, this project, we're going to be stopping here. This project, please start earlier. This project, hey guys, we can't be doing that today. It's too hot. And then our chief operating officer is really in tune with what's going on in this company. And he cares deeply about all of the people here. So he is always checking and he is the first to call up and say, hey, we've hit, hit our temperature. We're not working anymore today. Shut the job down. So that's kind of really the important thing is everybody paying attention from senior management and from the jobs. Ned, we had a question from one of the viewers using the question and answer button up top. And I think it, it goes to a question that we had for you as well. The question is, how do you address the value of using a wet bulb globe temperature versus using National Weather Service data or other websites like the ones you described uh, and their heat index data point? We found that it was just so much easier to use the heat index levels, the real field temperatures, because we set our program to those real field temperatures. We don't have somebody out there that's always measuring with a wet bulb. We, we just don't have it. I mean, and it, if you don't use it properly, you're gonna get an inaccurate reading. But with the real feel, we can get so close to where we're working. I mean, most of your phones have GPS that can tell you within a couple hundred yards what it feels like right there. As you can see in the picture there, we're out in the middle of the water there, right next to the key bridge. We could get accurate temperatures. And in August of last year, there was no wind blowing in certain times on, and it was hot, hot. But with those heat index levels, we're able to do our program. We set the numbers, we set the danger levels. We know what we need to do and our teams know where to find it. We talk about our program, we send it out. We are able to determine what they need to do and we set it for the work rest cycles for how much fluid they're supposed to intake, uh, what control methods are gonna be putting in place. That's part of what we do and it's so easy when we already have real field numbers. So it's easier to use, easier to access. It's probably less prone to error. Very easy to access and it, there is no error. You read your phone, it tells you the real field. That's what's going on right then and right. there. Right, and I, you know, unlike the table in NIOSH, which thinks that there should be different actions indicated by 90 to 91 degrees, you also have to simplify the zones. So the accuracy of the location of your weather data versus on the shore is maybe a difference of a few degrees, but it would still be within the same broad zones that you use for, for knowing what actions to take. Isn't that right? Yes. I mean, when we set up our, our danger levels, we had 80 to 91 degrees, then 91 to 103, 104 to 115, and greater than 115. I will tell you that 
we barely go into the lower two. Most of the time we stop at about 100. 105 is our dead stop cutoff. 103 to 105, unless it's a critical operation that we can't stop because if we do, it's gonna destroy the, what we're doing. We usually, we always stop at 100. About 102, 103, we, we start to shut operations down, but we have a, a cutoff of about 105. And even on those days, you're, you're trying to get out by noon. Yes, right. we've already planned around that. I mean, for construction, when you're doing a concrete pour, you don't start at uh, 7 a.m. You're in the middle of summer, you're starting at midnight, one o'clock or even earlier so that you're done before the sun comes up. Are there any other steps that McLean takes to mitigate the impacts of illness once you've, you've observed illness? I know you talked about starting the shift earlier. Yeah, I mean, we also take into consideration the environmental considerations. And what I mean by environmental is when you're out on the water during the summer, it actually takes a little bit longer for it to get hotter out on the water, but it, it tends to last a little bit longer on the tail end. So we have to take that into consideration. We also have to take in breezes when we're working out in the trees or in areas where there's not a lot of buildings and a lot, a lot of concrete. It's actually cooler when we're in industrial areas we tend to be it tends to be warmer so we're taking all that into consideration when we're planning for the day i mean we've talked about shifting our start times that's a key but also adding shifts so that you know we know that we're, our productions are going to drop so we're going to add crews so that we can still get the same production and also be able to rest our people we had one job where it was going to be steadily above 100 degrees so we had two crews and they were just swapping out. And we did that for that job. It was a small job that we knew we could knock it out in a couple of days. And then we also have to talk about shielding our employees. I mean, we do welding, a lot of welding and hot work. We have to protect our employees properly. One of the things that we take into consideration is we wear PFDs. Hey, PFD is gonna hold the heat in. It's a personal flotation device, sorry. Use the quick terms, but we got to take that into consideration. And then it's really, it's about constantly reinforcing what we've trained them to and reminding them. It's just always those reminders. We have toolbox talk isn't talking about heat. We'll have a reminder in that toolbox talk. Hey, remember, it's going to be hot this week. Remember to drink, remember to prepare the night before, remember to prepare the end of the day because you want to consume more fluid and make sure that you're consuming the right fluids. You mentioned drinking. I'll uh, ask one last question from one of our members of the community who's just uh, wrote in with one. How I know NIOSH, by the way, has the, another table for how many ounces per every 30 minutes they recommend people uh, take in. How much water do you recommend your workers drink in high heat conditions? So this is what we came up with our occupational doctor. This is not what I came up with. I, I consulted a professional on this. But at our level one, 80 to 91 degrees is 12 to 24 ounces. At a level two is 24 to 36 ounces. At a level three is 36 to 48 ounces. And in, in what time intervals? Uh, in, in an hour. Okay. That's a lot of water. You're taking in a lot of fluid at, that, at those temperatures. So that's why, I mean, when we're starting talking about a level three and four, those are you're just trying to consume water. There's going to be other issues when you're consuming that much water. And that's when we really work with our OCDOC. If we're going to be 
having to work that because then we have to think about you know Gatorade, Splinter, or one of those electrolyte replacers. So normally at that point, our operations is going to contact us and say, hey, we're going to be working and it's going to be hot. What do we do? Got it. Great answer. Well, Ned, I think you've got the last word of today's episode of the OSHA 3030. This is a program we do every 30 days updating you on developments in OSHA law and all of our prior episodes can be found on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. We are now not only a live webinar, but we're also recording this and we're going to rebroadcast it as a podcast. It'll be up on your favorite podcast app within the next day or so. All of us are available on LinkedIn. Ned, are you also on LinkedIn? I am on LinkedIn. All right, we're going to have to link in. And for all of you other safety and health professionals who want to link in with Ned, please do so. And with Taylor, me, and other safety and health attorneys here at Cohen Heckman. And as well, we rebroadcast this with the video, the slides, and the sounds together and post it on YouTube. As far as podcast apps are concerned, we're on any podcast app you're likely to use. The Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Google Podcast, Spotify, and even on iHeartRadio. And we're also available on your favorite home pod devices like Alexa. The next OSHA 3030 is scheduled for June 15th, 2022 at 1 p.m. Eastern, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Eastern. And we have sister programs. If your organization engages in activity that is regulated under TOSCA, REACH, or FIFRA, our next programs relating to the TOSCA 3030 and REACH 3030 are on June 8th, and those are at 1 o'clock and 1.35, respectively. And if you have any topics that you'd like to hear about relating to FIFRA, please let us know, and we'll, we'll be happy to put that together. On behalf of my colleague here, Taylor Johnson, whom I thank for joining me today, and myself, and uh, I'd like to thank, extend a, a warm thanks to Ned Fitter from McLean Contracting. Thank you very much, Ned, for joining us. I think thank your you. input, by the way, was extremely helpful. That real-life experience and thoughtfulness that you've put into your pro- developing your program is of tremendous value to the OSHA 3030 community. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate being able to talk to you all today. And thank you all in the OSHA 3030 community for participating today. We are recorded for the purpose of the podcast that I mentioned earlier. We are now going to turn off the recordings. Anyone who wants to stick around, you're welcome to. And we'll go into a session called Off the Record just for our live audiences. And we will answer any questions you have. I think we we already have one question that was pre-submitted and some of you may have some others. Otherwise, we look forward to seeing you in June for the next episode of the OSHA 3030. And until then, stay safe. Stay safe.